yes. Hi, everybody. Welcome on in to the Check Your Brain podcast. My name is Tony Mazur. I appreciate you folks uh, subscribing, listening, downloading this fine podcast. I also have extra podcasts on my Patreon at patreon.com slash Tony Mazur, T-O-N-Y-M-A-Z-U-R. You get about four or five podcasts per week if you are interested in that, and early access to guests like my current guest that I have on the show today. His name is Jake Fisher. He is a writer for Bleacher Report, and he also has a book out. It's called Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. And as somebody who is broadcasting out of a market where Yes, in the last five years, there was a championship, and there were championship runs in the last few years. The past couple of years haven't been as fruitful for a team like the Cleveland Cavaliers. But the Cavs aren't alone, and there's a lot of teams still waiting for that championship. That The Detroit Pistons weren't very good this year, and they haven't been for, well, the better part of a decade, I'd say. Um, Sacramento. I mean, really, when was the last time anybody's thought of the Sacramento Kings, the Vlade Divac, Chris Webber, Doug Christie, white chocolate years? It's been a long time that there are a lot of teams that they just really don't know when they're going to be good again. And it really stinks if you're an NBA fan in some of these markets that don't make the playoffs, where you go... We're, and, and I say it in the interview here, but there's a lot of general managers who have to almost have a like some kind of round table with the fans and just say, hey, look, if your expectations are here, well, you have to lower them because we're not going to be very good this year. And I just think it, it's really a disservice to a lot of fans that uh, for them to say, oh, wait, the organization, the, the team I'm a fan of is telling me they're not really going to try hard this year. Because they want better draft picks for the future. So it's October, the season's starting, yet I have to wait until end of June, early July for the draft to hope that there's some savior in college basketball this year who's going to take our team from complete and utter ruins to the promised land. And a lot of times it doesn't really work out that well. And some teams do it well. Some teams that the fans are patient and then they're diehards and they, they, they really appreciate the fact that there are uh, fans that will stick around for several years. And there's a lot of other fans who are looking and normally their team's playing at about 7 o'clock p.m. And they go, hmm, Matlock. I think there's a good Matlock marathon. Let's see, what's on? Oh, Barnaby Jones. I think I'm going to watch Barnaby Jones tonight. Oh, that elderly gumshoe. Ah, good old Barnaby Jones. And you're forgetting about the NBA, or that's the time when Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy are on, and people aren't coming back, and it's playing a role in the ratings. I think a lot of it has to do with the super teams. I think a lot of it's the analytics that you're seeing. I think a lot of it's the politics and the social issues that are playing into the fact that the ratings have never been lower, or at least in the modern times haven't been lower. And if this continues, if this trend continues with super teams tanking, social justice and politics and it, it really injected in the sport basketball is going to become a niche sport and it really shouldn't be because it's a still a very popular sport especially on social media so what is it going to take what is it going to take for fans to return to the game and and, and care about their team other than because I remember I saw a lot of bad basketball but I was still a fan of it growing up and I would still go to the games even if 
there's a chance that my team might get blown out tonight. So there's a lot of factors that go into this that are kind of up in the air and the tanking era, which might seem to be a little bit over right now, but it's a trend that's happening in sports. And these general managers are essentially telling you that we would rather be terrible and win 15 to 20 games in a season than to win about 40 maybe make the eighth seed in the playoffs and we get bounced in the first round. It's like you'd rather be a team that has an opportunity for the ping pong ball than to possibly have a a chance at the playoffs. Because you say, well, an eighth seed, how many times is an eighth seed knocked off a one seed? Not very often. Not often at all. Uh, So, you, you know, what do you do if you're a fan? You say, well... I guess I'll support them either way, but hey, I guess tickets will be cheap next year. So we get into talking about that and the NBA in general and where their future is with a lot of the star players now entering their early to mid-30s right now, especially guys like Chris Paul and LeBron are both 36. So we get into talking about all of that here in the book. Uh, The book, again, by the way, Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. Uh, by a Bleacher Report writer named Jake Fisher. So hope you enjoy it. Here is my interview, my conversation with Jake Fisher. Tony Mazur here, and uh, I've got a really good book that uh, I want to talk about uh, with my next guest. His name is Jake Fisher. He has a book. It's called Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. And there's something going on in the NBA as far as the TV ratings that have been down. And uh, though it's though the NBA is really big on social media and especially on Twitter and Instagram because they do a very good job with their uh, social media, it just doesn't seem like it's catching on in other places. And could that be because there are a lot of teams that when they start the season that it's just understood that they're not going to <laughs> – be competing this year and that it's understood between the organization and the fan base that hey we are going to suck this year we are not going to be good don't expect big expectations and the fan base is going okay then don't expect us to watch and attend so there's a lot of factors that I'm sure are are playing into this book and Jake talk about the the beginnings of this tanking era and what led you into uh, writing a book like this yeah, I think the tanking era kind of starts in 2012 and kind of ends in 2016 where you know the, the league was being run by the Miami Heat at the time and they were built with LeBron James, Chris Bosh, and Dwayne Wade, right? And they were, you know, three top five picks in that 2003 draft class where you flash forward. The 2014 draft class was considered to be the best class since that 03 group. So all these analytical-minded executives come into power. It wasn't just Sam Hinkie. It was Rob Hennigan in Orlando trading, trading away Dwight Howard. It was Ryan McDonough taking over Phoenix after the Suns signed and trade Steve Nash away. Danny Ainge in Boston, obviously he's in the news right now. He trades KG and Paul Pierce away to Brooklyn before the end of that era and, and before the ends of, of those guys' careers. While you know the Lakers, on the other hand, they were keeping Kobe Bryant. So the Celtics seemed to be a little bit of ahead of the curve And obviously that trade ends up netting Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. There were all these analytical-minded young executives, of course, you know, the most well-known is Sam Hinkie in Philadelphia, who were trying to lose games on purpose in order to get better draft positioning to get those guys in 2014. And by the time Miami's dynasty crumbled, they'd be there competing. And 
there's clear dividends to that strategy. I mean, we see Philadelphia, obviously they lost to Atlanta in game one of the playoffs, but they're the best team in the East this regular season. Phoenix, they're up 1-0 now on Denver. They didn't think necessarily it would be Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton when they started in 2013, but they're, they're a testament that you that you draft, you get multiple all-stars through the draft, and then one will join them in the offseason like Chris Paul coming to play. So I think the strategy clearly had its dividends, and I think um, you know, the, the clear reason was all these executives coming to take control of these front offices and wanting to play the draft lottery. You kind of see this in different sports as well, and to, you mentioned 2012 because I, I I think of that in football because that was the time when Andrew Luck was entering the NFL draft, and people were talking about whether it's in Indianapolis, Washington, Cleveland. It was the suck for luck sweepstakes, yeah. and so people, so you were just watching inferior football with the hopes that you're going to get this savior who's going to be joining your team next year, or with the possibility that he joins your team, and. Uh, kind of what bothers me with this tanking is, and you're and you're seeing it now across sports. So it's not just basketball, it's not just football. Even baseball and hockey and other sports are doing this, and it's kind of looking like it's better to be for a team and for an organization for a general manager. It seems like it's better to be terrible than mediocre. Yeah, it's a big issue with what you're talking about at the top with the regular season, and I think it's it's the valued. The, the annual product, the night-to-night product, but also I think it's even more important in basketball being that as much as you can suck for luck or the Jaguars get Trevor Lawrence this year, quarterbacks don't play defense. How many times have we seen a quarterback in the NFL playoffs go off the field with a lead and his defense loses the game? In basketball, superstars can play the entire game. They, they can control both sides of the court. And look at LeBron. Him making eight of the last ten finals or whatever it is, it's as much a testament to his brilliance as it is the agency that one superstar has. And that's why I think tanking in the NBA is so much more impactful and meaningful and polarizing. And insert any buzzword you want here because those guys mean so much. I mean, people, the the, the detractors of Sam Hankey's process want to call out Nerlens Noel and MCW and Jalil Okafor as – saying, well, they struggle, they fail, they haven't made the finals yet. Well, the, the, the brilliance, I think, in Hinky's strategy was you want to collect as many darts to throw at the dartboard because you only have to hit on a couple. And if you hit on Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, they can, you can see how those two guys can lift the franchise from mediocrity into contention. It's an interesting subject because, you know, we're kind of looking at this from an analytical standpoint of being a general manager, and especially in hindsight, when you look at Sam Hinkie and some of the picks that some of them worked out. I mean, Nerlens Noel couldn't stay healthy, but Ben Simmons has done well. Uh, Joel Embiid's an MVP candidate. Uh, uh, there have been good players that the Sixers have had. However, when you look at it from a fan perspective, and your general manager is basically coming out there in – July, August, September to say, hey, here's our introductory press conference. By the way, we're not going to be very good this year, and we're probably not going to be good next year. And there's a chance that we may not be good the year after, but what we're putting together is this team. So if you stick with us for the next few years and just support the team if you can, if you can go to the games, if you can buy a a t-shirt or a jersey, if you can do that, that's great, but we're going to be good in a couple years. And I just I think that's a lot to ask a fan base uh, in all sports, but especially in basketball, to tell your fan base to just sit there and be patient as they just watch time and time again inferior basketball. 
Yeah, I, I tuned in to Sam Presti's end of year press conference in Oklahoma City, and I think he did exactly what you mentioned. He spoke all about patience and building it organically and understanding the chance that, that comes into play with building through the lottery and ultimately having your fate come down to a bounce of a ping pong ball here or there. So I think the best executives aren't these days in the modern NBA, they aren't just brilliant basketball minds and brilliant team tinkerers and all that type of stuff. They're really good PR men and public relations, you know, czars, honestly. And that, that messaging, how you communicate that is ultimately a big part of the strategy. And, and that was a bit, that was the downfall of Sam Hinkie in Philadelphia. Honestly, he refused to speak to the media on the record outside of after the trade deadline and after the draft. I mean, I opened the book with a detail of myself getting dinner with him at Orlando summer league in 2014, but that was off the record. He was very willing to talk off the record to anybody. He just, he, he refused to speak too frequently at a point where he felt any concession he made to the public could have potentially divulged some information that would have been damaging to the Sixers moving forward, which I do respect. But when Jalil Okafor gets in a fight in Boston and then there's other, you know, interactions with the police that pop up in the news media and they finally suspend him. And the only person to talk about that situation publicly is Brett Brown before a pregame press conference at the garden when Sam Hinkie's in that building and he's still refusing to talk. That definitely, you know, continues to cloud those tanking waters. So you're right. I think messaging it publicly is very important to the strategy. The, it's, it's definitely about messaging. And when you saw teams that were really going hard after Zion Williamson a couple of years ago, and that was the, that whole sweepstakes because some were looking at that draft and saying, well, there's Zion, there's, eh, but it kind of drops off a little bit. So it seemed like all these teams are trying to jockey for position for Zion Williamson to be their savior. It, and it just, you were starting to see a lot of bad basketball, a lot of taking guys out. And then, of course, it, it kind of goes into a bigger aspect and a bigger talking point in the NBA of these, uh, you know, the what the uh, the load management. That's what it was. The load management of, yeah, well, you know what? That's the back-to-back. I'm not going to play Wednesday. And it, it just seems that uh, that was playing into a lot of that. And, and I, th- I, I don't know, probably that mixed with the super teams and analytics and everything kind of did something to some of the fan bases to just say, all right, well, I guess wake me when they make the playoffs. Yeah, the NBA is definitely got in a predicament and dealing with the conundrum being that they've succeeded in turning the league into an 11th-month news cycle where fans are just as excited, probably even more excited about off-season player movement and photoshopping any superstar into their team's jersey. And we're seeing it right now with Damian Lillard, right, where the, the, the Blazers flame out in the first round. They fire head coach Terry Stotts, and now every single team is talking about, oh, can we go get Damian Lillard? And that's really exciting for the league, and it's been great with the advent of social media to keep that conversation going all year long. But you're right. It's played a factor in devaluing the regular season, especially with the, with the load management of players resting on back-to-backs, but also – a lot of fans are not caring as much about a game on Tuesday night because they are just have their head in the clouds waiting for June and July, hoping that their team is going to sign these guys a trade for this guy or whatever. So you're right. It's definitely something that smarter people than myself need to come up with a solution to. 
I want to get back more into the NBA overall in just a little bit, but I want to go more into your book about, because we talked about what the Sixers have done, and I mean, they've had a first-place finish in 2020-2021, but they, they had a couple of third-place finishes, and up until this year haven't had haven't gotten past the semifinals. So some can look at that and say, well, look, here's what they did. They were able to really strip their team down and become – a, 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 a true factor in the Eastern Conference, while others can say, yeah, but they didn't They didn't make it to the finals. They haven't won the big one. They've had guys that are getting injured. What teams, in your opinion, or at least from your, your standpoint, tanked the best, and which ones tried and failed? Well, I think, you know, you know, I spoke to over 300 people for this book. That is the big selling pitch to anyone listening right now. I've got brand new information from players, agents, coaches, executives, all across the league, all over these pages. And you're going to find new info that you're not going to find anywhere else. And I think part of that info, a lot of the stories you'll learn is to find out that for any executive, for any coach, a lot of operating a successful franchise in the NBA is a lot about mitigating unforeseen variables. So to take an example, like the 2013 draft, where the Atlanta Hawks were desperate to draft Giannis Antetokounmpo, number 17. They were the only team to fly him in for a visit. Danny Ferry, the GM at the time, brings him into Atlanta. They put him up in Danny Ferry's house. He had dinner with his kids at Danny Ferry's kitchen table. They just couldn't trade up in time to get him over Milwaukee. And that's something that you know doesn't change Atlanta's fortune necessarily because it was something that was going to happen and they got the rug pulled out from them but it was a missed opportunity that's one example to talk about you know boston i think they tanked better than anyone for a while they bottomed out for only one year and then with that next trade with those picks that turned into jason tatum and jalen brown in their back pocket they were able to bounce back into the playoffs sooner than philly and sooner than phoenix and orlando because they had those other picks available and they make that stealthy trade for Isaiah Thomas, the 2015 trade deadline. They zoom into the playoffs. They then sign Al Horford in for agency. They swap Isaiah Thomas for Kyrie Irving. They sign Gordon Hayward. They drafted Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. They seem to be a juggernaut that makes three conference finals, and they're going to win this thing pretty soon. And then they start to realize, oh, this thing is a lot more about managing personalities and a workplace and a locker room as much as it is compiling talent. And ultimately, they ended up, you know, that thing kind of crumbled. And now we see Boston where they're at, where Danny Ainge is resigning and Brad Stevens is moving over to the front office. Now, I think Philly can get as much flack as anybody being that, yes, they lost for three seasons and Joel Embiid's been hurt a bunch and they've never made it to a finals yet. They've never gotten out of the second round. But you could spin it the other way and say, Hinky never had an opportunity truly to build that franchise. They were pushing him out, ownership group, bringing in Brian Colangelo. I have reporting in my book that they were trying to bring in a quote-unquote co-GM with Sam before he resigned. That's why he resigned from Philadelphia. They wanted him to work in an unprecedented two-GM situation that would never have worked out, and that's why he ultimately gave him his letter of resignation. But they have Joel Embiid, they have Ben Simmons, and now they are where they are. And I think the goal of any team in the league that wants to contend, it's really not to win a championship. That's the easy like, way to put a, a label on it. But the best analytical-minded executives like Darren Morey, who now is coincidentally running Philly, they all say entering a season, the best teams only have a 5% chance to win the title anyway. 
as we get to the playoffs on that field shrinks down to 16 this year 538 at ESPN they gave Philly the best odds to win the title and it was only 22.8% so what that means is to contend to win championships quote unquote the goal was really just to put yourself in that conversation and to give yourself a chance and for that I think Philly did a really good job they've been in the mix now for five plus years way longer than they tanked Phoenix they stumbled into luck with Devin Booker at 13. I had this detail in the book that he refused to work out with Utah at number 12. So he probably would have been a member of the Jazz if he did want to go there. And think about that Jazz team mm. if they added Devin Booker right now. But then they get DeAndre Ayton and then they get Chris Paul. I think Phoenix did an excellent job too. So I think the strategy, like we talked about at the top, it, it it's easy to see how it has clear benefits and how teams maybe even if it doesn't work out necessarily to, to winning a title. It clearly does, you know, it clearly does work out for a lot of these teams just to get yourself into that contending conversation. One thing in sports you see are a lot of trends. You see it, especially in, for example, football. They look at, oh, Sean McVay with the Rams is really good. Now we need to find our young coach with this bright young mind. And uh, we need a quarterback from a small school because Josh Allen did it so well. So now we need to go find it. So you see trends start popping up. But I look at yeah. the NBA in the last probably decade and a half. I'd, I'd probably say since the Boston Celtics, since they formed that team back in 2007, is that I, I, you see a pattern with a lot of them, and it, it's not just super team, but it's also guys taking uh, pay cuts to join other teams. Uh, you saw, as you mentioned, about the, uh, you, you know, you have the Celtics with Ray Allen, with um, uh, Kevin Garnett joining Paul Pierce and Rondo at the time. Then you had the, the run with the Heat for those couple of years. And even though they won just two championships, they were in there for all four years. Then it was Golden State, Cleveland, Golden State, Cleveland, Golden State, Cleveland, and then Golden State, Cleveland again. And mm-hmm. you start seeing the trends of these same teams that it, it depends on what what you're going for, but it seemed like a lot of these guys just wanted to get together and play. And the one thing I look at with the Cavaliers, for example, is, and they're just up the road from where I'm uh, recording this, is that the Cavs kind of lucked into winning a championship and getting good just based on where LeBron was from. I mean, LeBron, from where I'm recording this, is from about three miles down the road from me and went to school about one mile down the road from me. And his house is, I mean, like everything is right here. So if it wasn't for LeBron being from Ohio and being from Akron just down the road, up uh, down 77, would not have re- probably not have returned due to his legacy coming to Cleveland. Because if you think about it, in the years after he left for Miami, from 2010 to 2014, the Cavs picked Kyrie Irving and Tristan Thompson in one draft. Then the next year it was Dion Waiters and Tyler Zeller. Then the next year was the worst, not the greatest draft in the world in 2013, if you ask me, but Anthony Bennett's the worst first overall pick ever, in my opinion. And then the next year was Andrew Wiggins. So the Cavs never really drafted properly. So it's almost like it didn't seem like they were tanking. It's just some teams are just not that talented and they don't have the the acumen in the front office. Well, you know, I do have some details in the book a lot of Cavs officials do openly admit the tanking after LeBron left in 2010. And obviously they made that deal that ultimately gets the extra pick to take Tristan at number four. Um, but you're right. I think that's ultimately why Chris Grant lost his job. The, the drafting at the top of that front office was very porous for a long, long time. And 
Tristan's still playing in the, in the NBA and had a pretty decent career and won a championship, obviously, in 2016. But he doesn't seem to be someone that was worth a number four pick. I mean, Deion Waiters, I, I believe, from the reporting I've done, was really drafted at that, the behest of Dan Gilbert. And you go to 2013 with Anthony Bennett. Bennett was someone that a lot of people liked. They just didn't have him at number one. And I think if that draft had a different, clear, obvious top prospect, it wouldn't have been Bennett. The Cavs were just trying to take a shot because they couldn't take Nerlens Noel. Nerlens is torn ACL. It's going to leave him out that entire year. And if you remember that 13-14 season, the Cavs had pressure to make the playoffs. Deion Waiters and Kyrie Irving were talking about how they're the best backcourt in the East, and they were going to make the postseason and, and, and start some noise. And they couldn't take Victor Oladipo because they had a lot of people there um, who were in favor of Anthony Bennett. And you flash forward to Andrew Wiggins. I've got reporting in the book that Joel Embiid was their guy, 100%. He was the guy that the Cavs wanted to take. They brought him in for a workout. He was dominating that workout. He had like 14 straight threes from the corner. He was talking trash. He was having Cavs officials fall in love with him. He ate like four slices of chocolate cake at dessert. They loved this guy. He just broke his foot during that workout. Cavs officials to this day maintain that Joel Embiid broke his foot during his Cavs workout. And that right there eliminated the possibility of taking the number one. And they took Andrew Wiggins partially because he had the highest upside of healthy players there, but also knowing that Minnesota with Kevin Love making his trade request before the draft valued Andrew Wiggins over anybody else. And with LeBron potentially coming back, that was a big reason why they took Wiggins, knowing that the Timberwolves would want him in any Kevin Love return. So I think you can't really fault them for that selection. But the other picks, yes, absolutely. Pretty poor calculus by that front office. Boy, I was out we're working for a radio station the night uh, that Anthony Bennett was drafted, and we had him on our airwaves. And one of our hosts said, so who would you compare your game to? And he said, oh, I'd say because I'm a stretch, uh, I'm a stretch three, I'd say Brandon Bass. And I'm like, you don't take a Brandon Bass. That's an insult to Brandon Bass, first of all. And second of all, <laughs> you don't pick Brandon Bass first overall in a draft. I, uh, boy, that drove me crazy. But the Cavs lucked into a championship in, in that way, and a lot of guys started ring chasing. But you look at the Golden State method, where Golden State had that nice run in 2007 where they knocked off the, uh, Dallas with Baron Davis and that team. But Golden State, for a while, from all the way from the run TMC years, had been largely irrelevant until 07, and then after that kind of fell off the map too. And then they eventually get Curry in 09 and Clay Thompson and Draymond Green in 2011. And when you talk about the Golden State method, they didn't necessarily—I mean, I could be wrong. It didn't seem like they were tanking. They just— weren't a very good team in a very, at the time, strong Western Conference. Am I wrong about that? Talking about Golden State? Yes. They did kind of tank a down a couple slots to select Harrison Barnes one year, but you're right. They got Seth Curry, Steph Curry later down the lottery. They got Clay Thompson at number seven. They were just a run-of-the-mill poor team, and they ended up drafting really, really well. They got Draymond Green at the beginning of the second round, so... I mean, look at Denver right now. Jamal Murray is obviously injured, but they got him at seven. They got Nicole Jokic in the second round. Monty Morris is starting for them in Jamal Murray's place. They got him in the second round. Michael Porter Jr. fell for a lot of reasons, for his back injury, for other um, IQ-type question marks, and they still had the, had the guts to take him at number 14. They made 
really smart move, kind of overpaying Paul Millsap in free agency that year that they stole him from Atlanta. They brought in other smart free agents. They signed this guy, Fernando Campazzo, um, to like a pretty minimum type deal. And he's, you know, giving them pretty solid minutes here. I think team building, especially in small market, it's not just a one size fits all mentality. I think the most direct path to getting these all-stars is definitely at the top of the draft. But you're right. If, if, if you swing for home runs later on, you can be successful too. Look at Utah. They got Donna Mitchell at number 14 and they got Rudy Gobert at number 27. So, or Mitchell at 13, I believe. So there's clear opportunities to take really talented guys later in the draft. You're right. You're looking at the NBA right now and you cover them also for Bleacher Report. And obviously the book is great. And, uh, I start looking at the way the NBA is right now, kind of how I looked at the NBA in about 97. And I look at that, and the reason I say that is it was Michael Jordan returned, but you knew he wasn't going to be around forever. He, he was, you know, he, there were sniffing around of retirement and there was talks, and is this going to be Michael's last season in, in 97 and 98? And then eventually it was, and, you know, discounting him going back to the war or to Washington. Uh, but around that time, you were starting to see some of those players that a lot of us grew up with in the 80s that were starting to retire. The Barkley, Drexler, uh, Pippen was slowing down. Um, you know, just a couple of years earlier, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson. That So the NBA was kind of going through like an identity crisis, and they needed that next Jordan. The best players in the game were probably Shaq and Iverson around that time. And the NBA kind of went through it, and then eventually Kobe. But eventually they needed somebody who was going to be that next Jordan, which was LeBron, in a way where he was a larger-than-life figure. But I'm, I'm looking here at some of these ages going into the next season of players. I mean, Durant's going to be 33, Harden 32, Curry 33, LeBron's going to be 37 in December, uh, Lillard 31, Kawhi's going to be 30, Chris Paul 36. The league's not re- – like, who's going to be the next of the, the generation? I mean, you know, Luka's 22 and Jokic is 26, and there are some good young players, but are they at the level that you're seeing of that pantheon of the Durants, the Currys, the LeBrons, and the, the James Hardens? I think so. I mean, I th- Jokic is going to be the MVP this year. And Luca in Game Seven against the Clippers scored and assisted on. He created the most points in Game Seven history in the NBA. Look at John Morant in Memphis. He talked about that Zion draft. I mean, that was the first year of lottery reform that got passed due to the tanking error that we talk about in my book. And one of the unforeseen uh, ripple effects of that lottery reform was seeing teams being able to jump up more from that six, seven, eight range in the lottery up to the top three. And that's how Memphis got John Morant. And look at Ja. They, the, the Grizzlies win two play-in tournament games. They steal game one from Utah. Obviously, the Jazz steamrolled four straight, but that Grizzlies team isn't going anywhere anytime soon. I think what Devin Booker's doing in Phoenix is incredible. Um, I, I, I think the Jazz are here to stay with Mitchell and Rudy Gobert. I think the league is in a really good place with a lot of young people that are just super, super talented. I, 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 I'm only 27. I've been covering the league for eight years now, but – I do think this is by far the most talent that we've seen in the NBA in a long, long time. And I'm excited to see how these young players continue to, to grow and blossom. I, I like it too, but I, I guess my more of my question is that you're looking at a, a a league where there are good young players, but are they that superstar that you can see on 
billboards that the way that LeBron has been marketed and like are are these players yeah. mar- I mean I, I could be wrong I'm just I'm just asking like are they marketable players that you're going to see that they would be the next LeBron they would be the next Harden that they can be in TV commercials and that they're going to be uh, more than just basketball players you could see them in uh, in movies and TV show appearances like like I'm 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 hoping that's the case it's just I I guess I'm a little pessimistic when I see that because I've seen the NBA go through these growing pains before. Yeah, I think so. I, I think one roadblock is the fact that the major networks in the league keeps wanting to market LeBron over these young guys too. But look what Trey Young did against New York. He took over that entire city. He's bowing to the crowd. He's talking junk. He's doing, he didn't fill in game one. I, I think Luka's got that same type of mentality. I think all these young guys, when they when they're put on that stage, I mean, they're showing Devin Booker right now. They're showing they're not afraid of the moment. They're willing. They have personalities, and I think this is also the first wave of superstars that grew up with social media. They're all very conscious of building their brand and building their identity and selling and you know creating themselves into superstars as much as maybe their talent might not even be ready for that yet. So, I think once these guys that you're talking about, the LeBrons, the Hardens, the Stephs, the KDs, start to really step away from their prime and it opens the door for these other guys to take center stage. They're going to be ready for that moment when it does come. I hope so, but I, I hope the league is too because I see this across sports as well as golf for, you know, is always looked for who's going to be the next Tiger Woods. Um, you, you see in in NASCAR and in, in different other sports that who's going to be the next person when this person retires, when Jeter retired, who's going to be the next Jeter. And eventually there are people who do pop up, so it's it's interesting. And they do have a good crop of talent. I just hope they can keep it going. The last thing I wanted to ask you, and I really appreciate you being on here, uh, Jake, is the yeah. increase in analytics in the game. And, I, again, I'm, I'm crossing over sports because I think baseball, there are ways of using analytics, and it's – which is fine, but I think analytics in a lot of ways is ruining the game. They're talking about launch angle and they're talking about advanced statistics. And so batting averages are, are way low strikeouts are way high. And the fundamentals of the game have just really kind of eroded. And and I really don't like it as a guy who's a big baseball fan. Well, I kind of see that crossover in basketball where the analytics are showing now that why take a 20 foot jump shot when you can move back a couple of feet and it, it's one more point. And so when I start watching the NBA, it's a lot of dunks because it's a higher percentage shot. And also it's, you can posterize and be on, you know, sports center top 10, or it's a lot of three pointers. And I'm also seeing not a lot of defense being played in the NBA where even during the regular season, I'm seeing routinely every single game, is over 100 points. That's unheard of. That's like 1980s basketball stats. That what ha- like uh, I guess it, it's a two-part question I wanted to ask you is, you know, the increase in analytics is it good or bad or kind of indifferent towards the game? And the second question is, what in the heck happened to the defense? Yeah. It, it offenses are never have never been more powerful than they are right now. I think the only one downside is that it's it's created a bit of homogeneity with NBA offenses. That there there isn't a lot of unless you have one of these generational guys in Embiid, a Jokic, a Doncic, whatever. A lot of these teams are playing the same type of strategy where it's high pick and roll, spread with four shooters, and we're seeing teams launch threes on fast breaks and all that type of stuff. I just think that 
it's the natural evolution of where the game is played. If all of a sudden a new gas came out and it was cheaper and more efficient, everyone would start buying that gas and their cars would go further and they'd go faster and whatever. It's the same type of thing. We've just realized that three is more than two. And if you if you shoot 33% from three, you only have to shoot 33% from three to equal shooting 50% from two. So I think the math is just pretty simple. And a lot of these guys are, are very capable of shooting it now. And fans love the scoring. The fact that you can be down 20 and come back in a couple of minutes, you know, maybe that is something to say as an argument for the regular season being exciting, like your team never is out of it. So I don't know. We'll see if it really is a referendum on defense and shooting all type of stuff in the next couple of years. But right now I, th- I think it's trending in a, in a good direction. Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever by Jake Fisher. It's available now, and uh, it's a great book, especially if you're a team that's in Oklahoma City or Sacramento or uh, Orlando, Detroit, or Cleveland, where you're wondering when your team is going to be good again. Uh, This is kind of the Bible to take a look at it and say, well, this is probably what they're doing right now, and... I guess the the biggest thing to preach for some of those markets, especially the smaller ones that don't have super teams, is to preach patience, whether we like it or not. Jake, thank you so much. This is really great, uh, great interview, and uh, thanks for being on. And good luck with the book. Thank you. Thank you, man. I appreciate that.